Welcome to another edition of What's New and Wagyu. We have decided to do a special edition today. A special edition. Yep. Yeah. We're going to kind of like use the 60 Minutes pro platform on it. I, I think that's such a funny old school news section anyway. But so today we're going to skip all the little stuff we do up front and we're going to talk about some carcasses. So we had some okay carcasses this, this go around. Yeah, we did. Um, I'm going to give you a little history how they came about, and then we're going to go through the carcasses and things like that. So this starts a long time ago. Um, Eldon was looking for a black cow that fit what he wanted in a cow that could not only be a maternal cow, but pull forward a lot of um, really good marbling. And he decided that he found one in LMR 7670. And she is a good cow. She, she really is. She's a Michifuku by a, San, by a Sanjiro by a Nakazura on the bottom. Very high profile cow, even in today's standard. Right? And then not only that, she had like 80 some odd progeny. So, so they knew that, that this cow was a good cow. So Eldon then started looking at the red Wagyu and decided that he wanted to start running some red blacks. And a lot of you guys, I love it because you see a red black out there and everybody discounts them. It's just what everybody seems to like to do. Yeah. And if you had a meat program, um, those would be the cows you probably should be looking for. Let's be honest about it. We've had great success with them. Um, so Eldon had a really good friend named Dale. Okay. And Dale had some Semmental cows. And mm-hmm. Eldon started putting embryos in these Semmental cows of these red blacks. And then uh, him and Eldon would just split the calves up. So every year that he'd keep so many and Eldon would keep so many. And then Eldon started putting in full black embryos and that's where Yama come from. That's where, you know, bulls of that nature came from. Uh, Genesis, things like that. So moving on down the road, they got this group of animals where you had Red Emperor on top because Eldon believed Red Emperor was probably one of the better marbling Red Bulls. And then you ended up a 767T on the bottom. So Eldon passes away and um, me and Dale start doing some business and he's got some problems because he's got a pretty tight inbreeding coefficient going on. So he comes and borrows our herd bull. And he absolutely loved him. He'd be out playing with him and petting him and things like that. So our standing herd bull starts breeding these red black cows. And Dale and me had an arrangement that I would buy all of the steers and heifers and we would feed them and then we would kill them and and make our money on the backside. And it worked out really good while he was alive because he passed a year ago. Um, it, It was a good way to do business. Because we didn't have to have the red blacks on property. It gave us an extra 25, 30 cows to deal with. And we were getting what I thought at that time was going to be the best carcasses that I've ever had. And then fast forward now, three and a half years, you know, 40 months later, we're finally killing some of these initial calves (laughs) that that I'd been plotting and planning and working with Dale and a few other people just so I could get what I wanted. Correct. So the moral of the story is these these steers, I've been working on for five, six years. 
Like, like I want you to keep that into perspective when we start this. All of the, the, the dams are full sisters. They were all covered by the same Red Bull, MW Mr. Hamare 122E. And I'll have this all put together and put up. But, but that's what we got to remember is, is, is the genetic difference in these animals are very little, but the outcome of each of them is very different. You know, we got great, they were great carcasses across the board, but then we got an exceptional carcass. And, and running three quarter red, one quarter black for how long lane have people told me you can't get red, red marble. Uh, since day one, since day one. And, and we've run some full reds that marble just fine. Yeah. The problem you guys have is, is that you guys don't have the skills necessary to be able to break down the genetics and then figure out what you need. And, and there's a few of those, uh, lane, what do they keep telling me? Those are called internet trolls out yes. there uh-huh. that like to run their mouth. Right. And eventually one day I really hope that I get to be in the same convention Room seat with, with them, them somewhere uh-huh. because I really think that they would probably not say some of the mean, terrible things they say with me being there. Well, we know that happened. That happened when you were down yeah. in Houston, right? Right, right. Same thing. Right. Yeah. They, you, they like to run their mouth because they're far enough away they can't get punched in the mouth. And then when you're there... Probably smart. Yeah, it's probably smart because I'm from, I'm, I, I'll t- I tell people this all the time. I'm not, I wasn't raised in the right area for this generation's, of, this generation's mouth. Yeah. Um, and one of the th- three things you like to do most is fight. Right, right. It, it really is a pastime. Um, and, and I'm pretty proficient at it. Um, Uncle Sam, made, Uncle, yeah, Uncle made, Sam. Made, made sure you were right. Uncle Sam paid a lot of money to teach me how to, yeah. how to, how to take an ass whooping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like I find it funny and then they like to run their mouth and, and talk negative on a, on a pretty positive thing for the breed. And then they can't be patient. Like this was my favorite part. They couldn't be patient to let us put a podcast together. Like they wanted to know pedigrees today. Right now. And then they got mad when I wouldn't put them up. And what sort of marketing strategy would that be? <laughs> exactly. Right? So, so here's the deal. So all of these um, steers had the same dam breedings. Three separate dams, all Red Emperor by 7670. So, so Eldon was assuming that, that Diet would bring in a lot of marbling to these to these animals. And the weird part was, is we killed some early on and they didn't. That was the odd part. So the first couple sets, he steered some of the bulls and, and they just didn't work out for us. Not very good. Um, they and, were okay, but they right. weren't what we were looking for. You know, and then, so we influx in this, this uh, big owl by JVP 30E, which most people don't understand the 30Es. She brings a lot of marbling to the, to the table. Um, I'm not a huge Akiko fan. I think she's a good maternal cow. I think she's got good feet under, but she's not going to bring me the marbling that I need to keep our, our client base happy. 
And, and here's the biggest problem, you know, so the first carcass we roll out, people are like, oh, that's nice. And me and Lane, when we first looked at it said, oh, we're missing fines. We're missing this. We're missing that. But it's a good carcass. Like, like the people that are going to get it are going to be very happy to have it. And, and it's a good quality product. Then, then we killed it. Then we start splitting the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Wagyu are just so big. Um, a lot of people have problem. I, I'm not sure how it's a problem. Like, um, we see 1200 pound Wagyu all the time coming out of this yeah, that's program. Kind, that's kind of our that's, average. That's my niche, right? That's, yeah, yeah. that's where I like to see them between 1150 and 1250. Yeah. And we've, that's ideal. Them, we've had them everywhere <laughs> From there, we've had fourteen hundred. We've had the last one was fifteen seventy six. Right. I mean, big carcasses. Right, and 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 people have a hard time understanding. Well, how do they get that big? Well, one's one. I'll tell you right now. It, it's kind of three modes. One, we gave them the genetic potential to be big. Then we fed them appropriately to capitalize on that genetic potential. So there's a big shake of the dice early on with genetic potential, right? Correct. You either get it or you don't. Yeah. Like there's no uh, Lane will never be an NBA player because he he's five foot seven. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No matter how hard he works, he's yeah. not going to be dunking over Kareem Abdul-Jabbar any day. Not anytime soon. Right. But right. not without my stepladder. Right. Right. You know. So so we've got to keep that into into perspective. The next thing we've got to be into perspective is we've been feeding cattle a long time. Yeah, I mean, we're we're not talking about the eight years that we've been playing Wagyu. Steve's talking his lifetime. You know, I've fed cattle for better half the 30 years. I, I, you know, my granddad started putting me in charge of things like that when I was really young. Probably shouldn't have been doing it. That's the reality of it. Um, and then I'm educated enough and know enough people and have done enough things that... And ask enough questions? Right, and ask enough questions that I can, I can make a ration as good as most full-time nutritionists. But that's because that's what we do. And then I always send my, my nutritional stuff out and have them look at it. And sometimes they're like, wow, you guys are running a lot of this or too much of that. And I'm like, yeah, we're good, though. Like, like I don't send it for them to to look at it and say, oh yeah, I can't do that. I sent them that so that they can see what we're currently working with. Correct. And, and that's the hard part, right? Like, so now we're dealing with these carcasses. They're quite large. Um, they're so large that we end up quartering them just because that's the easiest way to deal with them. Um, they're just, they're big. It takes all day to, to process one appropriately. And then that comes to the next question I get a lot, you know, how are the yields, you know, how, how, how's your end yield from hanging to, to, um, box weight? Like that, I get that question a lot. So Lane, how did we do with this group? This group was actually the best group that we've had since we've been doing Wagyu. Um, usually... The Wagyu, because of the fat cover, big bones, structure like that, and we're doing most of it in boneless cuts, we're getting about 50% yield. And that's on the carcass weight. Right. It's on the carcass weight. Um, that's not adding in off-fall, side knees, bones, you right. know, all of that, right? We're not, we're not counting the tongues and the livers and the hearts and the, as 
usable yield, right? So 50%, we were feeling pretty good about that. But this last group of animals, we were doing 56%. We gained 6% of yield. And that has to do with being three-quarter red. Like, like that, that's the reality of it. We brought that extra red genetic in to get their yields up a little bit, and it didn't sacrifice the marbling. None at all. And I think, you know, what I like to, like our best carcass, I call him Biggs. Um, would I have liked to seen a little more fine marbling? Yeah. But the, the other two that were smaller. Had all the had, fine marbling you wanted. all the fine marbling you could ask for. Right. And, and, and that's I, what I find interesting. And I think it's because we ended up feeding the biggest one longer than the others and it yeah, but not got, by much. But, we went and I looked know. at it. Yeah. But but the the extra he's thirty six days older than the rest, and we picked them all up the same day. Us too, right? So I'm not yeah. sure that even that even plays into it. Maybe not. It's a genetic. I, it's a genetic, a genetic thing. thing. But what I am going to tell you is is I'm to the point now with our red herds that most people like you can tell. I, I can look and tell you how much red's usually in a carcass. Just by looking at the fat. Right. And we're getting to that point now where we've found a sweet spot for our, for our table folks, right? Correct. And then we found a sweet spot for our breeding stock. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're just going to continue down the road. But the interesting thing was, is, is the first one especially. So when we pulled that one up, Lane, Lane, th- this is sometimes where me and Lane run into some problems, right? Right. So I go, Lane, I need you to take that rib and I need you to tip it up on your side and do not chime it. Right, Lane? Mm-hmm. And Lane goes, I hate that. That's stupid. <laughs> I go, I don't care. I just want a picture of it. That's all I wanted. And Lane goes, well, I hate the fact that you're taking pictures with that big old nub on that rib. <laughs> and I said, well... It's all about pictures sometimes. So we got this great, beautiful setup. And then Lane, on the second one, chimes it, unbeknownst to me. And then I got that picture, the second, the second one, where, where it's not quite as wide. And it's a little deceiving, right? But Lane had chimed that freaking bone off. But that's okay. And it looked dumb. That, I, that we chimed it before we took pictures. But that's just what Lane did. But Lane, I want to talk about something that we've been noticing with our carcasses versus a lot of carcasses that we're killing for other people. Okay. And I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. So we're going to post some pictures so everybody can see the pictures. So this, this picture... So, makes- so we're going to talk about ribeyes yeah. right now. So this picture has three stack of ribeyes. Right. And the stack two, of two. two on the left side are what you would normally get, what we normally get out of a Wagyu carcass when we do other people's Wagyu. The, the number, right. the total that, number. That many, that many, that many rib steaks. 18 rib steaks. At three quarter inch. Yeah, 18. And then on the right, there's another stack, stack of, of meat. six, I believe there is. There is. There's six in the second stack. So by using the dedicated breeding models that we're using right now, we're getting six extra ribeyes per side. 
So I want you guys to think about that. So six extra ribeyes is another four inches of tenderloins. And then how many extra New Yorks did we end up with? We were getting four extra New Yorks. So eight across the carcass. Mm -hmm. So just right there, we've made ourselves roughly an extra three to $700 just in ribeyes. If we, and if we sell it retail out of the shop? Yeah. It's basically, those are pound steaks, so they're hundred dollars right. $100, $100 a steak. Right, so we made an extra 600 bucks. Right, just on the ribeyes. Or the people that bought it from us got a deal because they got six extra ribeyes, right? Exactly. It, it makes it worth buying a whole carcass. It does. But that's per side. So you're getting 12 extra ribeyes. You're getting eight extra New Yorks. You're getting eight inches of total of, of extra tenderloin. Like, this is the stuff I talk about when I say we need to make our money where we can. And bigger cattle have more volume, right? Exactly. So Lane, Lane sat down and figured this out for me that we could sell a quarter Wagyu for the same price we sell a half a beef for, a regular conventional beef. And they will receive almost the same amount of money back, or same amount of meat back on the quarter that we, we sell of Wagyu versus the half they're receiving from other people. Just because of the volume of carcass. Right. And by giving us those, those six extra um, ribeyes and the four extra New Yorks and the tenderloin, it works out really well for them because they almost get the same amount, right? Right. And if they're doing a half of Wagyu... They're getting as much back as an average... Whole animal. Whole animal. Right. And we're talking whole animals, six, 650. Yeah. Carcass weights. Carcass weights. 650s. And that's kind of what we see a lot of, though, Lane. Like those yeah, anguses that, that come in. That's, that's most of it. That six to 800 pound carcass weight thing is kind of where it's at. The other thing that surprised me was how tender all of it was. Like eat from, from first to last. Just just tender. Oh. Yeah. Like, it got so bad that they had to, like, open the doors of the freezers to get some cooling going on because they had fat rendering in their hands. Like, that's, that's a mess. Like, I don't know if any of you ever sat and watched them try to process Wagyu. It is not a fun task, especially no. when they're that big. And you're, and you're, you've got aprons on, you've got, Outer clothes on that you know that you're not, it doesn't matter if you ruin them or not. Right. Because it's going to be bad the whole time. You know, and the interesting thing, the other interesting thing to me about these carcasses, Lane, was that the animals themselves, we could have kept a liver on the, on the big one. It was real close to being able to be keeping a liver. And, and that's a four-year-old liver. Right. And that's not common. No. Like, that's one of those things that you, you see once in a while. <laughs> Did we keep it? No, absolutely not. But we could have. I think it was close enough we could have kept it. And as we looked at the other, the other um, organs, right? Right. The, the hearts were proper size for the animals. They weren't enlarged. Right. Um, pancreases had a little diabetes in them. <laughs> they were a little big. <laughs> they were a little, yeah, they were having a little bit, stressed a little bit. Lungs were good. Um, 
kidneys were pristine, really good. Um, so I mean, it's we decided we might be feeding just a little bit too much molasses. Yeah, but, that but, was that was one of the concerns I had was that um, the benefit of being able to kill these animals is I'm able to look and see what what issues we're giving them. And the biggest concern I had with this set of animals was the amount of sugar we probably gave them. Their pancreases were quite large. They they weren't in unworking fashion, and they still looked good. Yeah, but they were getting pretty big. They were getting pretty big. Um, and that that bothers me a little bit. So we just cut back on the amount of molasses we were feeding. But but this is the thing you guys don't. A lot of you guys don't get to get. Like you don't see your carcasses. You don't see the the evisceration process and have an opportunity to check lungs and lungs were are super clear. We're not having any dust pneumonia in the lot. You know, that's the first thing I look at. Mm-hmm. Then I start looking, I, I follow it down. You know, how does the rumen look? Is the rumen full? Is it distended? Is there an issue with the rumen? And it was great too. You know, the liver was a little bit, a little bit, not what I would like to see, but that's because we're, again, we're pushing a lot of grain, but that's with all animals that push grain. You get some, some liver issues, you get some pancreas issues, you get, you get some kidney issues in a lot of them at some point in time because you get that rumen too hot. We didn't have any of that with this group. The one thing I will tell you is we've had other sired animals from these females. Yes, we have. And they haven't turned out near as good. Nope. So I'm guessing, well, and by, by knowing, just because I've done this long enough and I know what we're doing, it's because of the herd bull. Like, we've killed enough of his F1s, we've killed enough of, of his other stuff that we know what he produces, and that's probably why we got to where we were. Now, all you, all you haters of Red Blacks, I, this is the reality of what the industry is going to become at some point. I'm not saying I'm getting rid of my Red Herd, and I'm not going to say I'm going to get rid of my Black Herd. But this is something that needs to be kept on, on check because there's a lot of opportunity for people to make good quality meat with Red Blacks. Yeah, if you think we're going to stop doing a Red Black... Um, Genetics for our meat cows. You're out of your mind. You're nuts. And, and that's the thing people forget. Because we got the best carcasses we have gotten yet haven't been full red. They haven't been full black. These red blacks outperformed our best blacks by a lot. And, not, not a little, Steve, it, a lot. And the carcass weights. I can't. How do I compete with, with the extra poundage that I'm gaining in the market, right? And we've, I've sold plenty of red black bulls over the years. And everybody who's ever bought one has truly loved them. So, you know, they're able to get a bigger carcass on them calves. If they have to sell them through a regular selling option, they're not taking a huge loss on hit. Like, like these, this is a big deal that nobody's really talking about anymore, right? Correct. And the other thing that's, that's sad to me about it is that we're stepping back and we're looking at these things, yet no one wants to like grab it by the horns. Address it. Right. None. And, and then everybody's like, oh, that's not real Wagyu. That's what they always go with. You know, that's not real, that's not real Wagyu. 
And I'm like, what on earth are you talking about? You know, those are the things that are wild to me. You know, another one that, that really worries me is when we, when we start seeing people start pushing really hard on, on, oh, it has to be all red or all black. If I was only in the meat business, I wouldn't own a red or a black. They would all be red blacks. If I was a commercial cattleman today, right. I wouldn't be buying anything but red black bulls. I can pick them up for five to six grand. They work great. They hold together great. They're, they're just a good combination animal that's going to give me everything I want with half the things that I don't. Because if I go black, I'm going to have some issues on my weaning weights. I'm going to have some issues here and there on appearance. I'm going to have issues here and there on a few other things. If I go red, black, and if I go red, I'm going to have a little less problems with my weaning weights, but I'm not going to get the look and the appeal that I want. So that's why red blacks have become so, so important in this chain. And you can get them a little cheaper, right? Right. And, and why wouldn't you want to be able to buy something a little cheaper? To put in with your commercial cows. That, right. That increases your value of your cows and your, your meat program. I mean, that's... You're crazy not to, right? Like, you're crazy if you think that that the dollars and cents aren't going to work for you. The one thing I will caution you on, um, I found that F1, you know, if you do a red black cross and then breed it back red, we have had better luck than red black crosses bred back. And, and here's the other one. So we had these red black crosses bred okay. back to a, to a Sugafuku 767T bull for a while. That was a red bull. That was a black bull. A black bull, okay. And they weren't near as good as these ones. Okay. Right? We line bred that out, that 767T with the Shugafuku on top. This has been the best I've seen for commercial groups. And I think that we need to look at this like as a bigger perspective. The commercial cattleman is going to be, at the end, the people that we need to keep our programs all going. We can't keep trading money back and forth with each other. No, that don't make sense at all, right? Right. And that's why I laugh a little bit because a lot of guys just trade their money back and forth. That that's what they do. And I think it's kind of it's kind of a backwards way of doing it. Because if I'm gonna go spend ten grand at your cell and you're gonna come spend ten grand at my cell, that don't make no sense. You know, Lane? How how's anybody making money on that? Well, some t- people like to make friends instead of money, Steve. Well, I, I get that, <laughs> but good heck. Like, there's there's a lot of money to be made in this game. You just got to do it the right way. You know, and then and then I hear some things on, online here and there, and they talk about um, how upset they are with the way that the association is handling things. And I step back and I go, well, then why aren't you doing something about it? Right? Yeah. Like, if you're so upset about it, why aren't we stepping back and doing something about it? You know? This EPD thing, EPDs take time. Mm-hmm. EPDs are not a, 
let's get it done today and we'll have it done within four weeks and, and it's all going to be fine. Like that's not how that works. It takes time. Yeah. And the time is uh, enough data. Correct. Built up so that you have a, can get a true measure of what's really going on. And the problem we're going to have is it's going to take 20 years. They should have started this 20 years ago. That's the reality of it. You're 20 years so Steve, with the smallest herd as we do have, right? Right. It's going to take longer than that. Well, you, you get anything, you're going to get start, anything. You're going to start seeing numbers that you can probably get behind in 20 years. Like, it's not going to be a one-and-done situation. It's going to be something where you're down 9, 10, 15 years out, and you're trying to figure out how how you got here, right? Right. And that's going to be the hardest one, I think, for a lot of people to swallow, is that without numbers, you're never going to have good data. Like, you can throw some stuff out there and be like, oh, we can have this, and we can have this, and we can have this. But the real reality of it is... There's not a lot of reality to it. Let's be honest about it. The Holsteins and the Jerseys, they've got millions and millions of samples. That's why they can use EPDs really well. Mm -hmm. It'll take us 10 lifetimes to get that. So let's talk a little bit about these genetics of these animals a little bit more. Right. So, <clears throat> we were talking the other day, and you don't know the joy that I've seen Stephen have. And to my, my part, to a lesser extent, but to see the accumulation of what we've been doing since we began, and we get these three carcasses. Oh, yeah. They are, they are. They're the culmination of the last eight years of my life. And it's, and it's been very, very exciting to see that. Um, Watch him come in and look at the the ribeyes as we were um, quartering these beef, and him looking at them and studying them and being excited and not walking out of my cooler shaking his head. And that happens a lot. It happens a lot. And then I looked at them and I thought, my goodness, we have accomplished this set of goals with these animals. Right. And it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a single animal. No. And the others, and the others were... And, and the problem is, is now we're going to do something that a lot of you wouldn't do. We're going to synthesize this and, and then magnify it. 
Yeah. That's, that's what we, that's what I do. That's what that's I do in every do. business I've ever been in. I find the thing that works and then we duplicate it. It's not hard. Like there's no secret to this. And everybody goes, well, what kind of feed do you use? We literally use the things we can't sell on the commodity market because they don't reach a certain standard. Exactly. So we grow Coors barley. Yeah. If it's over 20%, they don't want it because then it doesn't work right with whatever they're doing at the, at the brewery. So we used to get stuck with that and then have to sell it for $2 a hundred or a bushel, $3 a bushel for loss. Well, now I take it, we cut it up, we put it in the cows, and guess what? We don't have a loss anymore. And we are feeding our animals for three bucks a day. Yeah. Yeah. Alfalfa is the same way. We get some alfalfa, they get a little, little rain damage. That's fine. We'll take care of that. I don't like feeding high-protein alfalfa to cows anyway, especially not feeder cows. Yeah. They're not dairy cows. They're not dairy cows. I like 110 test alfalfa, and it usually takes two rainings to get it there. Right? Like, it's just yeah. the truth of it. Yeah. You know, the winter wheat, the soft white wheats we put in, that all comes from a similar situation. Oh, your test is a little dirty, or you this or that, or whatever reason they want to dock us. We just say, that's fine. We'll take it home. We'll chop it up. We'll feed it to the cows. And I realize that a lot of people don't have these options, but hey, Get more ground, grow more stuff. I don't know. Get some better friends. Yeah. Get Get some better better friends. friends. Yeah, get some friends. Yeah. You know, really, if you had some friends that were farming, they would love to do something like this because they're tired of taking a loss on it anyway. Think about it, Lane. And they'd rather, you could give them a little more than what they... Right. Just stick the... The freaking... Well, well, no, because you're never going to match distiller price. But... You can give them as much or a little more than the guy who was going to mill it down and, you know, buy it for $5 and sell it for freaking $25. Right. You, you, you be that guy. Yeah. Right? Like, why aren't you that guy? Yeah. Don't get mad at me because we have a program that works. Don't get mad at me because I'm able to get my products in, cut, and, and all of that for the price we do. Right? Like, like the problem is, is... That's when I, you know, that's where I see the most problems in this industry lane. When someone goes, you can't feed for that much. Well, we do it every day. It's actually a little cheaper, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. That includes our depreciation of our equipment. Right. Like, and that's our, the problem. And feedlot. And, and the corral. Corral. And, yeah. Right? I mean, like, like, the reality is it's probably cheaper than that. And, the, and people say, you're crazy. And no. No, we're not crazy. I mean, this guy is, you know, has his master's in accounting. He knows numbers. And what he does is break things down all the time. And he tries to get things to their lowest common denominator, and he does it. And the thing is, on feed, it's real simple. And I found this out as a kid. Like, this is even before I went to, like, until I, even before I learned how to be a cool, learning how to be a good accountant. My granddad said three things to me all the time. We have to justify the money we're spending to feed these animals with the profit that we're making. That's it. That's why the Jimmy Horner system will never work for me. Because they want too much money for it. 
that's why we can't go and put them in a feedlot somewhere because people are asking too much money for what they're actually giving my animal. And I understand in a feedlot, you need a $2, about a $2 profit margin to keep everyone happy. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. We just cut that out. That's, that's really what we've done. We run a break-even program in the feedlot. Yep, it doesn't do. cost us money. It doesn't, it doesn't cost us money. It doesn't retract from anything else. It's a break-even product. Yeah. We don't have to have the um, money we'd pay for someone else to do it. Right. It becomes profit instead of an expense. It Correct. becomes a, an asset instead of liability. Correct. And, and, the, and here's the other thing. So, you know, I put, a, I put a thing out, like, kind of what the average... If we sold... So, we'll talk about bigs, right? If we sold bigs per pound, it'd be $10 a pound hanging weight which would be $15,040, give or take. And then we'd have to deduct out his $4,000 in feed. Mm-hmm. So we're down to about eleven grand. Then mm-hmm. it's about $1,000 to $1,500 to have him processed. So now we're down to $10,000 profit. Now I want everybody to listen to this very carefully. $10,000 in profit is not very much profit because we have to span this across four years. I want y'all to think about that. $2,500 a year? Yeah. Per animal, which, per is, animal. which is good. Like in, a, in, a, in an agricultural, agricultural setting, that is good. Mm-hmm. But I could raise commercial cows and make $2,500 a year. Exactly. I could. You have. I've done it. You have. Right. But that's right. what I'm saying. This isn't a get-rich-quick scheme. This isn't a... Let's get in it and make some money. Like it takes time and effort and ability to make money in this game. And we make money everywhere we can. We make it in the feedlot. We make it in the genetics. We make it in the processing. So by the time we're all said and done, we have three profit centers. We have three profit centers. It's hard to beat a guy with three profit centers. (laughs) Like I'm just being honest about it. And, and Lane, What's the advantage it's given us having the integrated programming now? Oh, we have complete control of it from, right. from the time the calves um, conceived to the, even before that, because right. we're putting the pairings together. Right. To the time they either go off to the feed yard or, feed yard or somebody's, house, somebody's house for breeding or, or whatever. We have complete control of that with no middlemen. And that's Completely where we integrated. make. And that's where we make our money. That's where we make our money. So if you were, if you're out there trying to figure out how to make money in this game, I'm gonna tell you right now, you have to be the middleman. You've got to be the guy on the phone making the phone calls. You've got to be the guy handling the nonsense. You've got to be that guy, and then that's where your true profits made. You gotta be the salesman. You gotta yeah. be the doctor. You gotta be the. Lawyer, you got to be the... <laughs> the... The lawyer is the only thing that we don't do. Oh, sort of, kind of. We, we know when we need one and when we don't. Right, right. But I'm, I'm no, just we don't, saying... We don't, we don't keep him... Well, I guess we do keep yeah, him. He's, he's retained. So. He's retained. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. The, the lawyering is the only thing we don't do. We do the books. We do the payroll. Maybe that's do. what Ellie will be good at. Maybe. Maybe he'll be a good lawyer. No. No. <laughs> 
Spencer has to be the lawyer. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So another thing we're going to start doing the on the baby podcast, has to be the lawyer. There, there you go. So my kids are going to want to come. They've been telling me they started about a week ago telling me they need to be on the podcast. So we're going to start bringing the kids on the podcast. Yeah. And I want to I wanna just preface this. It's probably the funnest time having the kids around. They'll come down and push stuff around for Lane, like pigs and that. They're not quite big enough to push the beef, but if he's doing pigs, they'll go push him out of the locker for him. Yeah. Like they're getting big enough that they can do things. They can supervise Aaron yeah, they can at super- the scale. <laughs> yeah, they can supervise Aaron at the scale. Like, but but it, it, that's important. And I told Lane, I go, you know, Lane, why? You know what the number one reason why people's kids don't come back to their businesses is? They never made room for them. Yeah, it's the reason they don't come back. I think you're right. Well, I know I'm right. <laughs> I've watched all my friends who didn't have a place to come back to. Right. And their parents have monster ranches. So they went out and they became lawyers and doctors and dentists and all of those things. But But they didn't come back to the ranch. Because there wasn't a place for them. And my granddad always made sure there was a place. No matter what I did, there was always something for me to come back and that I could do that was mine. And it's like I told Lana, go, sometimes the kids just need to go down there because they're in trouble for the day. We'll make them pick up stuff on the floor and clean up. And like, it's a really good place to go and learn some basic skills. Like, Aaron, why don't you shut the door? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Lane's got an employee that can't seem to shut doors. But my kids, if if they're there, what's the first thing they tell him? Aaron, shut the door. Right. (laughs) My dad says all the doors need to be shut all the time. But that's, that's what I'm saying, Lane. It's a product of teaching them because one day, let's be honest about it, you're going to get old and then I'm going to get old and then the kids are going to run the damn place anyway. Right? Right. Somebody asked this question to me and Lane not too long ago. We go to a couple restaurants that are pretty... Lane, how, what do you, how do you refer to them? Because I don't know what the right way to refer to them is. They're usually a three or four wait, a week wait to get into them. High scale. High end. High end restaurants, right? As high end as we can have in Idaho. <laughs> Which I think, you know, to be honest with you, both Chandler's and Derailed would, would work as a high end restaurant in any state, in any part of right. the country. Right. The chefs all know my kids. And one time he goes, why do you bring them with you so much? I go, because you're going to have to deal with them one day. And it's easier for me if everybody already knows each other then the day I come and say, hey, I'm no longer wanting to do this. The kid's old enough to do it. He's taken over. Right. And that's the reality of it, Lane. Yeah. Would you much rather know the kid for his whole life or not? Like, and the chefs, like I've got, my kids go to restaurants that most adults can't get into. Yeah. You know, a couple of them, they're member only. We've never been a member there. <laughs> but we're more than welcome every time we sh- I call and, and ask for a table. Right. But that's what I people need to understand is this is a business like so our business model is very different than most of yours. At this, I told Lane this when we started this. We aren't building this for me. I, I'm too old for that shit, and I was in my twenties then. Right. This would be for the kids. Mm-hmm. This would give them something that they can have and move forward with. We just have to manage it until they're old enough to take care of it, and that's the reality of it. You know. If you're over, you know, if you're running a ranch and you, and you think that everything needs to be for you, you're 
you're forgetting who's going to have to take care of this ranch one day and it's going to get sold on you. And that's the reality of it. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, is just be kind to people. You know, a lot of people out there, me, it doesn't bother. Like you put mean shit on my stuff. I don't care. Like, I think it's actually pretty funny most of the time, but there's a lot of people that have been putting stuff on lately lane that people mean just mean. And it's not even to me, it's to other people. And I think that, that you guys have to remember that that I've been around longer than most of you. (laughs) And I've never seen this industry act this way. It's reminding me of how the Angus world acts. And we're getting, we're getting there. That's how we're getting. And I grew up through that transition. So I understand what it was like to go into the Angus world. And nobody liked it. So everybody needs to kind of be nice. Let's be nice to each other from time to time. Now, I'm the first person that'll call out shitty breeding. I will be, I am going to tell you that right now. But, you know, somebody's been working for four years, for, for eight months, and they think they've got a good product, and it's really bad. It's okay to let them know, but just be nice about it. Yeah, I, that's, you know, I, I get guys all the time. Well, cut them, cut their beef. They'll call me the day I cut it. Oh, how's it looking? How's it looking? Well, I'll send you some pictures and we'll talk. So I send them, them some pictures and and it's, and I let them make their, um, evaluation right and they'll say well that isn't what I was expecting and you know you could be really mean and say well you gotta you need to learn how to feed your cattle it's all your fault well it kind of is but (laughs) right right I mean but but I mean it's not gonna help anybody no so so what do you you know, yeah, they they didn't produce like we thought they, you know, like you thought you could. And then if you let them come around and say, well, do you have any suggestions to help me? When they start asking for suggestions, they're open for some help, not criticism. Right. I don't think, I think the term constructive criticism an oxymoron. It's not a good word. It's not. No. You can instruct and you can help in a way that you're not criticizing people, that they'll not be offended and right. blow you off, right? Right. And so we we try to do we try to do that when we're helping people. It's a lot of mentoring, Lane. It's a lot of mentoring. And a lot of times it's Lane calling me on the phone saying this is what they're doing. What can they do to make things better? That's usually the phone call that, that it is. Yeah. This is what I told them. What else can they do? And, 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 that, and, that, and then, then I usually have to ask questions like, what are you actually feeding? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I had them for 60 days on grain, but I didn't count the seven to 10 days up front they didn't eat. Or the two times I changed their ration because they ran out of the grain that I was using. So really, I only had 10 days on feed, full feed, or 20 days on full feed. Right. The and other so we, the other one we talk about a lot is maturity. Let them get let them get mature. Yeah, <laughs> guys, guys. If you're looking at your wagyu and you're looking on their back hindquarter, and the round isn't quite full, and if that top sirloin isn't 
as full as it can be, do yourself a favor. Don't kill your animal. Unless, here's my unless on this. So I was talking to Dave Derailing over at Booth Creek. Uh, shoot, it was probably a week ago. Okay. Their market for their Wagyu is a pri- just a prime product, right? Right. And they're getting good money for it. Right. And they're mostly, they're vertically integrated mostly too. Um, he's out of Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I really appreciated about Dave is, is every time I've talked to him, he knows his market. He knows that, that he can't spend more than X amount of dollars on an animal and it needs to be killed at this point so he has a profit margin. Well, evidently he's done some research. Right. And it's got some data from killing carcasses. Correct. And he knows at that what point it hits the prime number he's after. Correct. But, right? that's, but that's what I'm saying. You need to know your market too. Right. We know our market lane is ultra high end. Yes. That, that's, that's my market I play that's, in. That's where we're at. Because we have contacts in the market that make it easy for us. That, that's really the reality of it. Yeah. Most people, if they did a high prime product, they would probably be better off and be able to kill these animals younger. Yes. Like, I've, we've never had one of our own be not prime, but we've sure regretted killing a couple early because it wouldn't meet our people's standards. But if your people's standards are a prime product, home run. Yeah, it is. And you know, and that's why I tell people you need to know the market that you're trying to hit. And if they had that red, black, red cross, they'd hit it earlier than if right. A plain black or a right. Red and, and here's the easy way to do it, guys. If you really wanted to get into any any form of red blacks, either have reds or blacks and breed to them. Right, it's not that difficult. You know, there was a time there that we bred all of our red heifers to black bulls, and it was because of calving ease. We just wanted a little calf that worked good that we never had to worry about heifers, you know, having problems with. It worked out great for us for the time we did it. <laughs> then we got a great herd bull. We have a herd bull that drops a sixty-five pound calf, and it grows like crazy, and. And then we were able to get away from running blacks on reds. I mean, I mean, we had we have Hagrid. Yep, and we had um, so we had the Jabberwocky and Jessup and Dean. Uh, then I had our, Rowan. We had Rowan. Yeah, we have William. Yep, and they all give us that, that sixty sixty five pound calf that that we wanted grows like the Dickens, right? And they're all Red Bulls. Right? Like, like they're solid red, 100% full bloods. But we took some time to get them. Yeah, right? we, we had some failures with big calves. Yep. Judel gave us terrible big calves. Oh, good hell. Right? Uh-huh. And the, the, only benef- the only saving grace we had is that we had put them in big cows. And they're yeah. all embryos. Yeah. That was the only saving grace we had. These cows were big old girls. This was like their sixth calf. They dumped them right out. Yeah, we... We wouldn't want to put her on first-time heifer. Oh, boy. That would have been bad. <laughs> that would have been real bad. But, but that's what I'm saying, guys. You know, you can really, if you learn how to breed and you, you learn some time and you listen a little bit, you can learn a lot of cool stuff. The biggest benefit I had getting into this was Eldon. You know? And then I got Janelle. If I need something, I call Grandma Janelle in, in Montana. I pick up the phone, call her. 
And she's always got something to tell me about when, what happened in the nineties or, Oh, we did that in the early, early two thousands. And this is what we found out happened. And you know, it, you know, or I'll call Barbara, right? Oh, in Australia, this happened in 99 and 2000 and 2001. And, and it gives me that history base that we can make good decisions off of. And I know a lot of you guys out there won't have that because you're new to the industry and all the old boys are going, going away. The ones that lived through it, the ones that helped create what the program is today, and they're not leaving because they don't want to be here. They're leaving because they can't handle the new people. And a lot of times, too, I mean, you may not have a personal get-hold-of-me mentor on the, the phone, but we love people sending in their questions. Oh, yeah, you send in a question. We'll get back to you. It might not be today, and it might not be tomorrow, but we try to get them within the month. Yeah, and, and a lot of times we'll take those questions that you're asking, because if you're asking them, other people's asking them, and we'll answer them on the podcast. Right. And, and then so, everybody has it. Then everybody has, you know, our opinion. You might take it for what it's worth. Right. But we're taking this opinion to the bank every day. Yeah. So for us, it's worth a lot. Well, and, and it's, it's guaranteed money for us. Yeah. Right? I, I was telling somebody that the other day. I will never have to worry about showing up to, to Keith's house with an unacceptable product. Right. And he'd tell you. And a heart, oh boy. He'd call your ass out and make you feel like a three-year-old if you did that. You would. Yeah, I would. He's, not, he's not the gentleman. He's like 70 to. years old and cranky and runs a freaking construction company. You know, it, it's, it's so funny, right? Right. It, so... I'm I'm sometimes uh, put too much um, in my emails, and and uh, Keith is just kind to of the, the off, off it, right? <laughs> Ask him three question three questions. This is so funny, Keith. We're making beef bacon on one of our Wagyu beef. Do you want us to make some off your half? How about your sons and your friends? We will all take some. <laughs> that was all it was. <laughs> then I go, Keith, it's Lane at the Grazing Grind. Do you want dino ribs or short ribs this year? Short. <laughs> and this, this is, uh, he, he texts me, do we need to finish our call? Tomorrow work, maybe 5.30. I got all I needed, so good to talk to you. We'll deliver everyone's meat mid-February. Does that meet with your timeline? Sure. Fine. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. But but I love it because that's who he is. It is who he is. I, yeah. You know, without knowing Keith, I'd never be putting hydronic floors in my new house. Right. Because he, he I knew if there was a problem with them, he was going to be the one that was like, oh, don't ever do this. And he said, this is the best thing he's ever done. You know, that, that kind of stuff, it means a lot to us. A lot of people don't take it for as much as it is, but geez. Now, the asshat that bought the last, got, the, got, got bubs. Got what? The, the, the guy who got bubs, the big, the big, big one. The big, the big one? He's probably our most picky customer. He is. 
So when I, when I made the comment, I don't know if this is fit for human consumption, I was talking about him. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to enjoy every ounce of that beast. Yes, they will. Because here's the deal. Where else are they, they going to get one like that? Right? Heck, that, that dude would probably pay us 30 grand for that if we asked for it. We're not going to. Like, that's not who we are. But if we were like, hey, this was a really cool product. We need 30 grand out of this. He'd probably pay it. Yeah. I. And he wouldn't even feel bad about it. No. You know? And that's what I try to tell people. I go, you've got to have the ability to do a few things. But here's the biggest ability. As a, as a breeder and as a meat producer... You better be eating your own product, right? You've you've stressed that from day one, right? On our podcast, you right. have to. You have to. How do you know what you're doing if you're not eating your own product? Right. And I will tell you, I'm finding it more and more people I talk to. I'm like, well, how's the product? Well, I don't know. We sell it all. Well, how in the hell am I supposed to help you? If you don't know. If we don't know what the product's like. <laughs> it makes no sense. So, we are in the cutting room the other day. We're cutting bubs. And uh, there's always wedge pieces and things and stuff like that. And that you can throw in the ground beef and stuff. So, I was cutting some of these things up. And we always have a little barbecue stove out there and... And I take this Wagyu out. The, the best we've ever produced, ever. And I take enough out, and I fry it up, or not fry it up, but yeah. grill it up, grill it up. And I take it in and slice it up. And everybody got a really nice portion, not a little bite, not a little taste. Right. A really nice portion of the most wonderful. I'm the only guy here that hasn't had any. <laughs> wonderful, uh, luscious Wagyu right. beef, the best carcass we've ever produced. And the person who has this, so everybody understands this car, this, where this carcass is going, would expect Lane to do that. He would expect Lane to, to treat his employees like that. And we do it because they're the ones that are working on this and putting so much time and effort and skill. So me and Lane have this conversation right now because I'm right in the middle of a house build. Oh boy. And I go, Lane, do you know what one thing's so weird to me? And he goes, what? And I go, these people build these homes, yet none of them will ever be able to afford to have one. And it makes me feel bad. Yeah. So Lane tries to make sure that the guys down at the shop don't end up in a situation where they work with a product every day that's so beautiful and so elegant and never get to try it. Like, that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know? That's not acceptable at all. Well, we've got a little situation. And the situation is, Steve has a... Great big commercial freezer at his place. And we put Wagyu in. Yep. 
at his family and my family. And everybody, goes, yeah, and everybody else we know seems to yeah, get into it. Get into it. And, and uh, it's full. Yeah. We have another way to go into it. Yeah, because because our rollover stuff. Yeah. So so Steve says, "What's the problem?" Yeah. And Lane goes, "Well, I don't have any room." He says, "No, That's, you we got have, plenty of room. We have four full time guys and two full time guys on the kill crew. On the kill crew, split that what's in the freezer up six ways. Send it out the door and give it to them, and we." Restock it with the new stuff. Right. You know, so guys, let me say this. We are literally taking five, six thousand dollars of Wagyu. It's, yeah, it's probably top line. Yeah. And just giving it to our help. Well, yeah. Because. We treat them like family. Right. And it's... And it's coming out of my personal stock, right? Like, I keep a very high personal stock for a few reasons. <clears throat> we do a lot of tours. And in those tours, what's, what's the ending thing of every tour we give? They get some either out of my, my fr- freezer or your freezer. Right. And we make sure that they get some good quality Wagyu steaks and stuff because you know what? But kind of like drug dealers. Yeah. The first ones are free, and then they're hooked, and then it's expensive. Then, then we then it gets expensive for them, but not yeah. that expensive. Reasonably, reasonably expensive. But right? but that's what I try to tell people. I go, I I always keep at least a whole animal around for that purpose because we get so many people coming that we'll go through three quarters of a of a wagyu a year, giving boxes out at the end of our. Tours. Yeah. That's just what we do. That's just been, it's been part of it from day one. Yep. So it's just, it's just, you know, what we do to treat our customers right, to treat our crew right. Right. To treat um, future customers correct. It's just part of it. It's who we are. You just got to be nice. Nice. I tell people that all the time. Your ninety percent of your problems will be solved if you're just nice. That's it. You know, and that's and it is what it is. You know, you you you're either going to learn from it or you're not, and that's okay. So we are done today with our special edition here at What's New and Wagyu. We'll catch you later. shirts even when they weren't in style I remember singing with Roy Rogers at the movies when the West was really wild I was listening to the Opry when all of my friends were digging rock and roll and rhythm and blues I was country when country was a Circling the drive-in Pulling up and turning down George Jones I remember when 
Hey, I 